As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to An Hour of Our Time. This week we're going to talk about Las Vegas, its settlement as a city, the introduction of gambling and its mob influence, as well as its present-day economy. I'm Mark. I'm Dave. I'm Joe. Vegas, baby. Roll some snake eyes. Yeah, we're going to go on down to Glitter Gulch now. When you go on down there, you'll be worried about the coyotes. <laughs> Oh, man. Las Vegas. Uh, we went to Las Vegas for a family vacation when I was, I want to say, 14 or 15. Really? Yes. Did you hit it big at the tables? I did not. It was really weird because they kind of, for a while, were advertising it that it was like a family destination. There's nothing that kids can do in Las Vegas. No, no, no. Can't gamble. You can't drink. You know. The only thing you can do that a that a fifteen year old is really interested in is eat just ungodly amounts of food. I remember distinctly we were walking down the street with with my parents, right, and dudes are just like hand like trying to hand you like porno mags, like shove it into your hand and then like get mad at you to pay them, and it's like, nah, leave me alone. We went to Las Vegas at my my 21st birthday, me and my, my friend Mike, who I grew up with, and my uncle John, and we went out there, and maybe we can start this episode with the story of that trip, but one one thing that happened was that there were always yeah, guys holding these like strip club flyers out, and they would like yep. slap them on their hands and then hand it to you, and I remember one guy did that to Mike, and Mike went, ah, I like the jive of your slap, my man, and for some <laughs> reason, I just remember that moment. I'm sure Mark can can hear him saying that. Yeah. I was just totally not. I was not prepared. My 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 young my young mind. <laughs> well, let me rehash a story because this is a this is a famous story. I haven't told it in a while. So yes, 21. This would have been May of 2007. Dating yourself. Yeah. For a sandwich. <laughs> so Mike and I were 21. My uncle John is at the time, was probably in his late 40s. So we go out to Las Vegas, and I had never been there before. I don't think Mike had been there before. I remember that like the first night we got there, Mike really likes roulette. So he plays roulette, and uh, he wins like three or 400 bucks like all of a sudden. He's really psyched up about it. But um, my uncle was kind of like treating me for my birthday, so he had uh, bought tickets for like the Cirque du Soleil Beatles love show and some stuff like that. But Mike didn't have a lot of money on him. So he decided like, well, you guys go do that. And I'm just going to hang out here and I'll meet you afterwards. And what we noticed was when we, when we were leaving, Mike had purchased like, like a 24 pack of Natty Light or something like that. Just like, I'm, he's like, I'm just going to hang out in the hotel room like cheaply so that I can spend money later on. Oh, that's not, I, yeah, I see where the story is going. But what we didn't know is that after we left, he went back down to the roulette tables and lost everything he had won plus a couple hundred. So when we finally got back to the hotel after going to the show and stuff, he had drank pretty much the entire case. He's like totally blitzed. So um, I, I don't know why I decided I wanted to get out of the main strip, like the real commercial side. I wanted to go to like, you know, I guess you would call it a seedier area of Las Vegas. So we did. I'll talk um, about that part. 
Yeah. And we, we go out there. I remember that the first place we went to, they gave you beers in the shape of a football. It was a big plastic clear football. Um, so Mike's drinking that. We we end up in some some strip club somewhere. Uh, and Mike ends up getting thrown out. And he's like, he basically comes up to us and he says, hey, I got to leave because if I don't, this guy, the bouncer is about to throw me out. So Mike takes off and we finish our drinks and we go to find him and he's nowhere to be found. Oh, wow. um, and my uncle starts to freak out because, you know, he's like, you know, your aunt's going to kill me if we lose Mike in Vegas. Like Mike's yeah. dead now. We don't know where Mike is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and he didn't have his cell phone on him. He had forgot it in the room. So we couldn't get a hold of him. So we're, we're walking around this area. We can't find him. And then uh, finally we get a phone call and he had, he had made his way somehow back to the hotel, took a cab or something. And he's like, I'm just going to go to bed. So my uncle and I were like, okay, he's going to bed. It's like two o'clock in the morning. So we stay out a little longer. Maybe it's about four. We go back to the room. And I remember I turned on the lights and Mike had clearly passed out after taking one pant leg off. Mm. So he like fell asleep with his head in the middle of the bed, his ass up in the air, one, (laughs) one pant of his jeans off and just like was out. (laughs) Did he have a, did he have a one, uh, one leg like on the ground? to keep the bed from spinning <laughs> i remember like, room, one leg one leg spinning. was like straight out like literally yeah. was in the position of like pant is off and he didn't even stay conscious long enough to retract his leg well you know <laughs> you dave you just violated the cardinal rule of las vegas because as so much marketing has told us what happens in las vegas stays in las vegas well, to be fair, this story happened before that tagline, and I'm I now have, on this podcast. I have told everybody that story. There were photos. We definitely took photos of him when we found him. Oh, of course. So, and then those photos got passed around the next Christmas Eve when he was over at my parents' house. So, the story's out there. I, I'm sure Mark has heard the story and seen the photos. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. That's uh... <laughs> But that was my Las Vegas trip. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, it definitely isn't like my kind of place. But if you go there and decide you're going to embrace it, then it's pretty fun. And I imagine Michael and I will go back there very soon when we can because he's a huge Raiders fan and the Raiders just Mm. moved to Las Vegas. Right. So we said the next time the Raiders play the Browns in Las Vegas, we're going to fly out there. So that should be within the next two or three seasons. Do you know where the stadium is? You know, I'm not sure. That wasn't in my area of research. I think it's relatively close to like UNLV. Okay. But I'm not positive. Well, one thing that I'll talk about that I did not know, even though I went there, but of course it was a long time ago and I was a, a baby, is that the strip, the main, you know, the casinos that you see, if, you know, depicted in basically a movie, if it was made after like 1980, you're looking at the strip, is not in Las Vegas. It's outside of the city limits. It is not in the city of Las Vegas. I That's did right. not know that. Yep. Uh, the 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 actual Las Vegas Strip is inside the unincorporated communities of um, Paradise and Winchester. So like all that tax money doesn't go to, uh, or a lot of that tax money doesn't go to Las Vegas. So there's a, a like a push, um, especially lately, to create like certain um, cities have like where there's a conjoined government with the city and the county. Sure. And a lot of people want to do that to make Las Vegas, in quotation marks, encompass everything that people think of as being Las Vegas. So it's some interesting politics that I did not know about. Yeah. I mean, I think people imagine that like that is Las Vegas. Yeah. But no, that's just like a desolate part of the desert that they somebody <laughs> claimed at some point. Well, we'll talk about exactly that. Yeah. The, the Las Vegas, uh, the sign that says, uh, welcome to the uh, famous Las Vegas was like it just on a road in the middle of nowhere, but of course the strip has grown mm-hmm. to now like encompass it. So it's basically <laughs> that sign is like just in the middle of the street. It's like on a it's on a berm. They didn't move it though. No, they didn't move the sign. The the all the strip just expanded to to engulf it. Well, where to start? Well, as with most things, I took an unnecessarily deep dive into the history. We're going back to ancient Greece. We are going back to the Pleistocene era, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> now you're speaking my language, Mark. Yeah, you're you're stepping on like Joe's primordial tail over here. No, 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 That's no. Right. This is I'm just, excited. This is just brief. The city of Las Vegas lies in 
about a 1,600 square mile valley near the foothills of the Sierra Madre Mountains. In prehistoric times, the Las Vegas Valley area was a lush wetland, and they've discovered a good number of Pleistocene-era fossils in this area. Evidence shows that uh, Native American habitation in the region goes back about 10,000 years, and the primary tribe in the area would be the Paiutes. And they also found some pyroglyph paintings on canyon and cave walls. And then after that, not a lot happened until 1820s. Kind of sad as a desert out there. The first Europeans to enter the area of southern Nevada uh, were Spanish scouts in 1821 who were trying to explore and open a trade route from New Mexico to California, which eventually became known as the Old Spanish Trail. All down Portugal way. Old, <laughs> Old Spanish Trail sounds like a canned chili brand. <laughs> Old Spanish way. Now, Old Spanish way? Now in mild, medium, and spicy. Got all the spices. Um, <laughs> one of the scouts uh, named Rafael Rivera named the valley Las Vegas, meaning the meadows in Spanish. Uh, for the, area, the meadows? Did he fucking see it? Uh, apparently, there were um, a bunch of characteristic grasses nourished by underground spring waters. Or was this guy on peyote? Show so much you know, Dave. There's a, a natural oasis here, which makes this valley very special and why people keep coming and setting up a fucking fort here. Isn't a natural oasis an oxymoron? An oasis. A wonder wall, if you will. <laughs> it's not an oxymoron. You mean it's redundant. In uh, 1844, a guy named John Fremont, who was uh, an American explorer and military officer kind of guy, entered the Mexican ter territory um, and was sent by President John Taylor to set up a temporary John, fort. John the Toolman Taylor? Yeah. More <laughs> settlements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his commanding officer just stood behind a fence. Well, he was sent by, by President John Taylor to set up a temporary fort at Las Vegas Springs, the natural oasis. Um, sort wait, of wait, his, President of what? President of the United, United States. States. John Tyler. John Tyler. You were saying Taylor. Oh. That's why I said the tool man Taylor. Oh, fuck me. John, John Tyler. Got it. Okay. May I continue? Yes, you may. They set up this this fort here as a sort of a secret preemptive advantage in the coming Mexican-American War, and this settlement sort of res resulted in the you know American victory in the Mexican-American War and helped the area become a U.S. territory in 1848. In um, 1855, a small group of Mormon settlers built another fort there in the valley and they intended it as a rest stop on the journey from utah to california but uh, soon abandoned the fort because of infighting and the environmental difficulties of the region because it is a desert yeah i could see that shortly after that there was a guy named octavius gas with two s's he took over the old mormon fort and named it los vegas Los Vegas oh. Rancho. Which um, means the Vegas. The Vegas Ranch. <laughs> Rancho. And apparently he made really good wine there, and it became an even more popular stop on the old Spanish trail. The fuck is this guy getting grapes? He just made it out of rocks. Is he dragging grapes into the desert? For a long time, it was just a like a... A settlement out in the middle of nowhere and sort of a a truck stop, if you will, on a trading route going to California. And then again, not a lot happened until 1905 when the San Pedro, Los Angeles, and Salt Lake Railroad connected Las Vegas via train route on a line between Utah and California. Ah, uh, the railroad. And it became a, a stopover location and was eventually incorporated into official city in 1911. And because of, you know, this nature of the Wild West and people passing through, gambling entered the picture. It, it helped make money for permanent settlers to Las Vegas and was appealing to the, these types of travelers. Gambling was outlawed in the city in 1910, but re uh, reversed in 1931. 
You're right. During that interim period, though, um, organized crime got its fingers in the pie and continued to operate. Can I mention something about this period as well? Yeah, go ahead. So there were two other major cities that had very prosperous gambling, which was sort of the, I guess you could call it the blueprint for Las Vegas. One is Galveston, Texas. Okay. So Galveston is an island just off of Texas mainland. And because it's being an island, the people there sort of felt that they were exempt from the rules set out in the state of Texas, and it became like this gambler's haven. It wasn't legalized, but they were kind of just like openly doing it. In, a, in Galveston, they, they felt like they were on island time, so the rules <laughs> didn't apply to them. Yeah, the same thing sort of happened in Hot Springs, Arkansas, because it was like this sort of isolated area, but it became like a gambling mecca. Now, both of these cities, their gambling economy sort of crumbles when Las Vegas becomes popular and eventually... You know, it gets more regulated and the gambling goes away in these areas. It, as you said, becomes legalized in Las Vegas. But there are some um, kind of models set forth before this happens in Las Vegas. Mainly, this is during the 20s. Well, between 1910 and, and 31, when uh, gambling became legal, uh, organized crime entered the picture. They operated a bunch of illegal casinos and speakeasies. And their influence on the city lasted the next several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, in 31, they reversed that decision and made gambling legal, mostly because Las Vegas and that area doesn't have any kind of other economy. It's in the middle of the desert. They don't have any kind of, you know, resources or anything to draw on except it, you know, being in a prime location as a, like a transit stop and then a tourist destination. Right, but they can't really do any trade unless somebody like really needs sand. <laughs> or if you're in, like in the market for like those old women that just sit at slot machines all day, have box those. box oh, them up. I got a lot of those. That's the most depressing thing in the world to me. I don't understand a slot machine. I'm sure you'll talk about it. I will. I won't tell you about slot machines. The other thing that you can get in Oodles in Las Vegas is electricity. Oh yeah. Um, in 1931, construction on the Boulder Dam, uh, later renamed the Hoover Dam, began close to Las Vegas. And with this massive construction project brought uh, young male workers and the construction of new casinos and showgirl venues for these guys to have something to do. And uh, upon the dam's construction, a lot of cheap electricity giving Las Vegas one of its many nicknames, Glitter Gulch. Glitter Gulch. Uh, I don't like that name. Hit your wagon up and head on down to Glitter Gulch. The first casinos opened on Fremont Street, which was the only paved road in the city and didn't receive a traffic light until 1931. So even in the 30s, this was a pretty, pretty remote, desolate sort of western town. Yeah, it really was. It's like the Wild West just sort of kept going. I read in one article that there was an effort by federal government to regulate dam workers coming into the city, which I'm not exactly sure why, but it led to some further smuggling and and organized crime opportunities. Regulate them how? I think so that not as many of these dam workers came into the city at a time. Like they were rationed or something. They're probably pretty rowdy. The construction of the Hoover Dam created Lake Mead as well, which is a, an attraction in its own right. I have been to Lake Mead. Is it nice? It is a big lake in the middle of the desert. Okay. Ask so, no? I to go on a boat. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. From 1940 onward, uh, military bases near Las Vegas also helped grow the city. Pretty close by, there is the Nevada Atomic Test Site where they detonated many atomic bombs. And mm. some some were even visible from the Strip, um, lending Vegas another new nickname, Atomic City. Right. Or Up and Atom City. Atomic Gulch. Atomic Gulch. That sounds like a wrestling finishing move. What, what kind of move would that be? It involves testicles in some way. I don't know exactly how, but it has to. <laughs> It sounds like, well, you remember when uh, Yokozuna used to do the bonsai drop? 
Where he would just sit, sit on you? He would straight up sit on you. I think it would be that, except like if you were just like a weird desert person. That was the character. Like Desert Pete. You just come out and you're really tall and thin, scraggly. Glitter gouch. <laughs> Yoo-hoo. Ugh. In um, 1941, the El Rancho Vegas Resort opened on US Route 91, just outside of uh, city limits. And uh, other casinos followed. This became the Strip. A lot of casinos were apparently built in Old West themes. Like full on like dust floor, you know, like a like a dirt not dust floor, but like a dirt floor. Really? Are you being trying to joke or no, that, no, no, not when, okay. I didn't know to what degree they did that, but like being in the desert already seems kind of Yeah, I mean we'll get the Bugsy Seagull in here in a minute, but when they opened the Flamingo, some people call it a carpet joint because he wanted <laughs> everybody to wear tuxedos to be fancy. A lot of the other ones were so like western not even Western themed, but like Western in their attitude. Just that it was literally authentically like a, like a Western. <laughs> kind of like a saloon. Yeah, I read that too, that it it wasn't uh, you know, until much later that they actually had like having a carpeted resort was a a big deal. Which is really interesting because now, you know, the trend after like the year two thousand was to build these like huge like like luxury hotels and things like that. Well, but that's the thing. That's why the Flamingo struggled at first because the locals didn't really, like, they didn't understand it. They didn't know what this new fancy carpet was. Where am I supposed to spit my peanut shells? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even have any spittoons in here. De- Desert Pete goes rolling in there wanting to lay down the atomic gulch and he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so this Western aesthetic gave way to a glitzier Hollywood vibe in mm. uh, 1946 when mobster Bugsy Siegel Open the Flamingo Resort, a much different kind of Las Vegas attraction. So let's talk about Bugsy Siegel for a second here. So he is part of a a relatively large Jewish organized crime syndicate. And there is a guy named Bill Wilkerson. Bill Wilkerson owns the Hollywood Reporter. I think that's what it's called. It still exists today. And he also owns a bunch of other nightclubs. And he starts work on the Flamingo in 1945 but he runs out of money pretty quickly. And Bugsy Siegel starts to see this as an area where he can make some money. So he jumps in, gathers up some of his fellow mob investors, and essentially says, okay, we'll pay to finish the final phases of construction. But pretty quickly, Wilkerson's out. The mafia has sort of taken over. Well, so the, the mob has taken over. I guess it isn't the mafia. And he tells his investors that he can finish this project for like around a million dollars, but it ends up taking like $6 million. So they're getting very suspicious about him and they're trying to figure out what to do. And one of his buddies who's pretty high up in this, this, this organization, shall we say, convinces the, everybody else to let him, you know, to see if he can make it work. So on December 26, 1946, Bugsy Siegel opens the Flamingo and it fails. There are horrible rains that day when it opens, which is rare for Las Vegas. That keeps a lot of his Hollywood friends from coming in. The locals don't know what to do with it because, as I mentioned, he wants it to be a more sophisticated place. So he has carpet on the inside. He requires all of his male staff to wear tuxedos. Female staff are wearing like dresses. It's, it's supposed to be very fancy, but that is very opposed. That's kind of what we think of in Las Vegas now, which is why they mm-hmm. call Bugsy Siegel the man who invented Las Vegas. He didn't, but he sort of set that tone. But it, it didn't do well at first. Um, and ultimately, it, it sort of continued to struggle. And, you know, in 1947, he ends up getting shot a bunch of times in the face and, and, and is killed. Uh, but after that happens, his his uh, former pals take the flamingo over, and they, they end up being able to make it into a success. No more glitter gulches for him. Not really. He was only involved in Las Vegas for about six months before he got killed. And he also worked with a guy named Meyer Lansky, who was the Jewish money man for, I think, one of the Italian crime families or something like that. The The mob seized on a on a pretty good opportunity here. So in a city that doesn't have a lot of economic resources other than gambling, they've got the money 
And a lot of them partnered with people who had the know-how of how to run a casino. Put two and two together, you got a successful casino. In addition to the mob, though, there were more legitimate investors from Wall Street to the Mormon church. Yes. And quickly helped helped open more clubs in this old strip, such as the Sahara, the Riviera, and the Sands. Like you said, it was kind of a flop initially because it was a lot different than what people were used to. But soon celebrities flocked to Vegas as both top entertainment in many of the casinos, but as interested players as well. And by 1954, Vegas drew 8 million visitors a year. Did you also read about the involvement of Jimmy Hoffa? Yeah, a little bit. Like the reason they needed these other investors is because the banks in the area stopped being willing to work with these people because they they started to figure out what they were involved with. Um, And so they needed to bring other investors in. And Jimmy Hoffa, as the head of the, the Teamsters, was basically tapping into their resources to fund this. So it and, and like you said, the Mormon Church it, it it ran strangely deep in a lot of different directions. What did the Mor- Mormon Church want to do with that? I wonder. I that I don't, I don't know. know, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But hmm. uh, I'll, I will see if I can find that out while we're talking. Check Tangled out. web. So Bugsy Siegel kind of starts this trend. Mob money comes to Las Vegas, so there were people running casinos who weren't in the mob but did ha- didn't have the money to expand. This time period was kind of all about expansion. And there were people in the mob who had the money but didn't know how to run a casino. This uh, initial mob influx, though, caught the attention of the federal government pretty quickly. Yeah, it did. Particularly a eccentrically named man named Estes Kefauver. It's a cool name. He was a a Democrat from Tennessee and was involved in uh, like tracking down organized crime. He held a a meeting in 1950 in an old federal building in downtown Las Vegas to sort of... Do you know what that building is now? (laughs) It's a mob museum now. Correct. (laughs) Um, It's the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement, better known as the Mob Museum. He had this uh, like sort of publicity meeting about like, well, we're going to get all you mobsters. And it furthered the like legendary status of mobsters and their connection with Las Vegas. There was another guy named uh, Mo Dalitz, who was a, a bootlegger and racketeer from Cleveland, who was one of the investors in the Desert Inn. But he was close with Jimmy Hoffa. And they ended up getting money and refinancing casinos with millions of dollars loaned from the mob-dominated Teamsters Central States Pension Fund. This is some fancy money work here. That sounds less than legal. Things don't work out for Hoffa, so you, that, that seems about right. <laughs> I, no, I've heard they didn't. Supposedly, he's in the concrete at the New York Giants Stadium. Yeah. That's the prevailing theory. Mythbusters did it. They didn't find it. Like one of the first. Ep- no, that was like one of the first episodes. That one about what happens if Jimmy Hoffa's body runs in the rain. It gets more <laughs> yep. wet. Yeah. That's that's the one. That's the one. If you drag Jimmy Hoffa's corpse through the rain, there there were um, sort of regulatory agencies in Las Vegas to sort of oversee some of this gambling and the expansion and stuff going on at this time and they uh gaming regulators made a notorious blacklist of people who were banned from casinos and a lot of them were known people involved with crime syndicates such as uh, sam giancana and the kansas city crime lords nick and carl savella Attorney General Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, was also a big crusader against mob mob violence and organized crime and stuff like that. And he wanted to do some raids on certain areas. And the the officials in Las Vegas kind of told him not to do it, but he did it anyway and pissed a bunch of people off. And we saw what happened to him. That's true. So I have our Mormon answer a little bit, and I think it might lead to what we're talking about here. So, essentially, what happened was that um, 
you mentioned, Mark, that that this Las Vegas sort of became a pass through for Mormons in between California and Utah. Mm-hmm. And they had formed the Continental Bank of Salt Lake City. And that bank then opened the Bank of Las Vegas. And there was a guy named E. Perry Thomas. He was a Mormon financial manager um, who was part of this, this Continental Bank of Salt Lake City. And he was put in, in charge of the Bank of Las Vegas. And they started to loan money to these casino owners, but then started to figure out that they were corrupt. And at one point, he was asked about the risk involved in dealing with these kind of people. And he responded with, quote, I'm in the banking business, and these people were good loans. But eventually, it started to get worse. So he fought to change rulings to allow for corporate ownership of casinos. And that meant that the Securities and Exchange Commission would oversee the casinos, ensuring that any mobsters could no longer use them as fronts. Hmm. So the Mormons were sort of the beginning of, of cleaning this up. And that brings us to Howard Hughes, which I'm yep. guessing is where you're going, Mark. Yeah, that's the next thing. Before I get to him, though, one other thing that was kind of interesting in this article that I forgot to mention is that in the mob world, Las Vegas is considered an open city where people from different cities, like there were a lot of people from Chicago that came to Las Vegas and a lot of, like I'm not sure what the difference between the mafia and the mob is, but certain crime organizations had consistent representatives in Las Vegas where they could sort of openly compete. I had corrected myself earlier about the mob and the mafia, but I think that those words are sort of synonymous for one overall okay. thing. I don't think these people can call themselves part of the mafia or part of the mob. I think that those are terms that are used on the outside as a blanket for organized crime. There are different competing organized crime groups, and they all work in within Las Vegas, basically with the same goal, but... Here is a sort of a special example where there seems to be enough money to go around for everybody. Damn right, yeah. In 1966, um, the eccentric businessman Howard Hughes uh, ushered in a new era of Las Vegas development. Did you hear about how he how this happened? He moved into the Desert Inn when he arrived and ended up staying like longer than his welcome. He but wouldn't. In, he wouldn't leave the room. So he bought the hotel. And he bought the hotel instead. He also bought several other hotels, spending about $300 million. Yeah. And his his influence sort of pushed out many other mob, mob ventures in favor of business and real estate conglomerates. There was also uh, the Las Vegas Sun newspaper and its editor, Hank Greenspun, uh, who aimed to expose criminal connections in the city and help recreate the image of Las Vegas as well in this time period of the late 60s. Well, for, for a while, even after after this, there were fronts and other kind of operations going on, but it made it a lot more difficult because of the regulatory boards that were put in place. Oh, my God. At one point, Howard Hughes bought the Silver Slipper Casino, and he bought it solely for the purpose of moving the resort's giant neon slipper. Like, he wanted it. So he bought the whole thing. <laughs> wow. I. Okay. okay. From now on, I'll talk about, you know, giant slipper money. The, the Vegas scene began to change again in uh, 1989. When casino developer Steve Wynn, who had been a longtime Vegas fixture, built the Mirage Hotel. So older casinos around this time were starting to be demolished to make room for new mega resort casinos with grander themes like Caesars Palace, Luxor, the Venetian, Paris, Las Vegas, and the Bellagio. Um, These are what I would think of when I think about Las Vegas, where there's kind of like a theme and it's very fancy and opulent and over the top, not a, a a dirt saloon type of place like Yeah, they're they're basically in the forties. They're basically small theme parks. Mm. Yeah. In fact, um they're uh on the east side of the strip, the casinos are connected by a monorail. <laughs> it's actually the Las Vegas monorail system that'll take you monorail. from casino to casino. And uh, 
originally the uh, the two monorail trams were purchased from the Walt Disney Corporation from Walt Disney World. <laughs> so they were actually it was actually like the Disney World monorail. Now they have new ones, um, but it's still from uh, purchased from the same company that builds uh, the monorail trams for uh, for Disney. So like it literally, you know, people talk about the Disneyfication of Las Vegas for a period of time. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed like when I went out there, I think that's the reason why I wanted to go to a seedier area because when you go to the strip, the main strip now, it seems very modern and I kind of wanted that more like Rat Pack experience and it is definitely seedier. So the Las Vegas Strip is what we've been talking about, the, the newer casinos. Um, that is typically considered to be the... So there's casinos all over the city but when you when you think of las vegas you're probably thinking of the strip that's the area of las vegas boulevard between the uh, sahara avenue and russell road it's about four miles 4.2 miles are we talking old strip or new strip this is the the new one okay so this is the one that's actually outside of las vegas city limits um, as i mentioned before it's in the unincorporated um, communities of paradise and winchester i see okay the uh, the Sahara Hotel is typically considered to be uh, actually the Sahara Hotel was recently demolished, but that was what people consider to be the northernmost you know start of the Strip, and then Mandalay Bay, one of these huge mega resorts, is the southernmost. Um, I think the Mandalay it, Bay is where I stayed. That one has like an actual like it's an it has an aquarium inside of it, so each one has like. Know, some some kind of attraction within it besides just the the casino part right and the shows then uh, about a half mile south from mandalay bay is the welcome to famous las vegas sign which like i said was just like in you know the the middle of nowhere but the strip has kind of encroached on it as i mentioned there's a monorail that runs four miles uh, to several of the hotels in 2020 the Las Vegas uh, monorail company actually filed for bankruptcy because of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but I think it was having some problems before that. So this monorail, um, originally some of the hotels got together to build it, but then it became its own company and it gets revenue from fares and then also from corporate sponsorships. So you can basically buy a monorail tram for a while. Dave, there was one sponsored by um, Monster Energy Drink, so you can Right, the monster energy drink. The the monster rail. The monster rail. I I hope that that's the one that uh, you were in when you were there. But uh, so it, the Las Vegas Monorail Corporation fell uh, filed for bankruptcy and uh, it was purchased by the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. So it's now like basically a like a public you know utility because mm. um, it, it helps people get around and helps tourists get around. We talked about a few of the major casinos, but like again, to mention a couple of them, there's well, like New York. New York is one of the ones that has like a, a small scale reproduction of the New York City skyline. It actually has a roller coaster. Oh, it sure does. I believe that that it might have been that or it might have been Paris where Mike won and lost a bunch of money. There's um, there's the Luxor, which is basically a glass pyramid, and yep. and. You know, and then there's there's you know several other ones, but if you go a little bit further into Las Vegas, you you get to what some people refer to as downtown Las Vegas. Although it's not actually downtown, it's more accurately called the uh, Fremont Street Experience because it is on Fremont Street. Well, that adds up. <laughs> yep. So what happens is that I think this is where you were, Dave. The, the like the older casinos, they were starting to lose so much business to these big mega resorts on the strip um, right. that they, they got together to do something about it. So by 1992, 80% of the casino business was on the strip. Okay. So a consortium of casinos got together to make the street into an attraction itself to lure visitors there. Also, another thing, I'm going to talk about slots a little bit later. They also advertise that the casinos in this region have quote-unquote looser slots so you have a higher chance of winning, although it's, right. like, it's like a percent or two. But that's what they advertise, that you could win more money there. So trying to attract more of the people that are into the gambling, you know, less than the 
roller coasters. So uh, you will like this, guys. An early idea for the attraction was to build a life-size replica of the Starship Enterprise. This was their original idea. I heard about that. You wondered what would bring Mark to Las Vegas. Right. That. There was a a Star Trek-themed... It wasn't really a casino, but it was called Star Trek The Experience, and it was like... There's a replica of quarks from Deep Space Nine and like the bridge of the Enterprise D and stuff that you can go and see. I remember seeing that advertised in maybe like an airplane magazine or something. It seemed cool, um, but I don't think it was open for very long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these eight casino hotels joined together to create Fremont Street Experience LLC. And they started uh, building this thing in 1994 and finishing it in 1995. Um, so four entire city blocks were closed to vehicle traffic, and they enclosed the entire thing in a canopy. The uh, underside of the canopy uh, has, like, lights embedded in it. And, you know, every so often there's a light show, and they have st- actual s- stages built in to the street where they do live musical performances. There were um, 2.1 million incandescent lights. Uh, just in 2019, the canopy was uh, upgraded to LED. So now there's 12 million LED lamps. It's far and away. I think it doesn't count as a screen for some technical reason, but if it did, it'd, it'd be the largest screen, like far and away the largest screen in the world. And uh, there's also 220 speakers in it. Uh, they're working on a system or they've recently put in place a system where there's a smartphone app where you can request <laughs> songs to play on the canopy. So people go down there for, you know, basically the street itself. Um, so 60% of visitors now say they're drawn by the light show. And so the downtown areas continue to develop, whereas in the early 90s, it was, you know, the casinos were going to go out of business. Hmm. Um, it's still not doing, you know, the same amount of money as um, the strip. I think the ratio I read was uh, most recently like 1 to 10, you know, for every, every $1 spent in downtown, it's $10. But those are also much bigger operations that cost more to run. I was going to say, yeah, there's a lot less overhead. So, yeah. So, so there are different, you know, there's sort of different regions, but if you want to see the, you know, I guess the, some of the more historical casinos, you have to go down to downtown or the Fremont street experience. So would that be the old strip? Yeah. Some people call it that there's, there's various names for it. That's what it was called when I was, I mean, that's what it was seemed colloquially referred to by our, cab driver so I, I was a little bit confused about this so in, in my history rundown um the first casinos in the early 30s that opened were on fremont street and then later the other ones uh, starting on 44 that opened outside of the city that would become the new strip just to clarify the oldest uh continually, oper- continually operating casino is on fremont street there in the the quote-unquote downtown area the old strip Mm-hmm. So yeah, do you want a pirate ship and a pyramid, or do you want old timey Vegas feeling? I mean, I was happy to have a little bit of both, <laughs> but I think I liked the old, like kind of shittier. Everything looks like it probably has hepatitis on it. Like that's that's what I wanted, and, and I know for me that sounds weird. But that does sound very weird. I'm not gonna touch anything, but I, I'll look at stuff. Look There's a lot it. of lights and, you know, old women at slot machines, as I mentioned. It's it's more, for me, it's more of an anthropological experience. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Looking at some, some revenue stats, it mm-hmm. looks like uh, a couple of the biggest ones are the Venetian with a reported consolidated net revenue of $13.74 billion in 2019. And the MGM Grand, um, twelve point nine billion. Damn. Some of these uh, are owned by the same companies. Yeah. I know the biggest, uh, or one of the biggest, I should say, like you know, casino magnates in Las Vegas is Sheldon Adelson, who is otherwise famous for donating huge, huge, huge sums of money to uh, Donald Trump and other uh, members of the Republican Party. That checks out. He died recently. Yeah, he did. He would just sign, like, I think in the last election, he signed off, like, a $50 million check at one time. Just, God here damn. you go. Yeah. In um, the fiscal year 2017, 24 casinos on the Las Vegas Strip area 
produced gaming revenue of more than $72 million. Sam. The average daily revenue of a single casino made up to $1.8 million with 634.5 thousand coming from the gaming bets. So it seems like food and the hotel and everything else is just a, as a important economically as gambling itself. I think so. That was their big their big bet was to build these huge resorts to get the the people. Some people can spend the entire time that they're gambling, but most people won't gamble the entire time so that's how can they get more of your money while you're there right well it's all you know it's 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 like the all-in-one experience like one of the problems with the flamingo when it first opened was that because bugsy siegel sort of rushed the opening he had the casino part ready to go but didn't have the hotel part ready to go and they hadn't really worked out their whole casino practice yet so people were winning very easily large sums of money Hmm. but then there was nowhere like nothing else for them to do like stay in the hotel or anything so they just bailed so it was very clear that the idea was like okay you 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 gamble in the hotel if you lose great we get your money if you win you're likely to put that money back into the hotel and it's like this this cyclical pattern yeah we didn't talk about the system of comps the the hotels there exactly yeah uh well you know, it starts off like the, the more the you first gamble, taste is free. the more you gamble, the more free stuff they give you. Like, you know, here's a free drink, you know, so you stay at the table longer or, but eventually like people that spend large sums of money get, you know, free rooms and things like that. We well, see when I was there, the only game that I played other than slot machines was back was blackjack because blackjack is the only game where statistically you at least have as good of a chance as the house. Hmm. Everything else, you're at a disadvantage. I did lose very badly, and I didn't understand the etiquette, what you're supposed to do, what you are and are not supposed to touch, and I was pretty drunk. So it was a weird experience. I remember Mike having to pull me away from the table. (laughs) (laughs) Give me them damn cards. (laughs) What the fuck is going on? Nope. (laughs) Well, I know that casino planners do things very deliberately to cause people to gamble more like um obscuring windows or placing gambling things away from a natural light source so that you don't know how long you've been there gambling oh, there's usually no natural light like once you get through the entry doors, oh, yeah. even if you go to a shitty casino like in west virginia and i just point that out because i've been to one there's no natural light very few clocks they do that they give yeah there's no clocks you there's carpet get free drinks <laughs> In uh, the 2019 fiscal year, 169 large casinos reported total revenues of nearly $22 billion. Their aggregate net, net income almost reached $2 billion. And at the same time, casinos in the state of Nevada generated $8.76 billion in revenue for gaming. Hmm. So some other, some other interesting stats about Las Vegas as a city. Since the 30s, the city nearly doubled in population every decade until about the 70s where it it slowed but continued to grow. And by 20, uh, 2006, Vegas was the 28th largest city in the United States with 552,000 in the city and 1.8 million in Clark County. Um, This rapid growth caused urban sprawl and commercial and real estate development um, throughout the area. But uh, in the early 2000s, the recession hit Vegas pretty hard in terms of unemployment and housing costs. But as a result of that urban sprawl, I remember when I was in school and I was getting my teaching license, Vegas was one of those places that was sort of touted as like, you could go out there and get a job because the urban sprawl was so much that they needed teachers. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a huge city and it it continues to grow. The job market in Las Vegas has been the hardest hit among U.S. metro areas during the pandemic. This whole Las Vegas area is reliant upon travel, discretionary spending, business conferences, and large gatherings. But all of those things are not happening right now. Um, in April 2020, um, shutdowns resulted in a 34 percent unemployment rate in Las Vegas. It's improved a little bit since then. Um, It looks like since 
uh, as of November of last year, it's at about 11.5%. It's a lot better than 34%, but it's still really high. Yeah. Um, Las Vegas still has the highest unemployment rate among large metro areas, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data. There's another, a different article here. The MGM Resorts posted a 91% decline in quarterly revenue at the beginning of 2020. I mean, you would think at some point it would be cheaper just to shut down for a while because they they can't be making money to keep the lights on. I mean, there's so many lights. There are a lot of lights. A lot of lights. Glitter Gulch. Glitter Gulch. I mean, I'm not making light of the situation. I'm just saying, like, at some point, you would think just sort of, like, shutting down for a while would be the most cost-effective thing. Yeah. I have a list here of the biggest casinos in Las Vegas, and the largest one is... Okay, wait. I want to try to guess. A bunch of these are ones that I have not heard of. Yeah, we're guessing anyways. The largest one. Size-wise, not, like, money-wise. Yeah. Size. Maybe the Mirage? Caesar's Palace, maybe? Nope. Neither of those are on this list. Damn. The Sands. Sands is pretty small. It's an old that's a pretty old one. It's gotta be something very new. Well the the like biggest, Bally's, maybe? The biggest one, according to this list, is the Win Encore. Oh, and okay. I think it's one of the pretty new ones. But yeah. it is uh one hundred and eighty six thousand square feet. And they have um, 1,900 gaming machines and 167 table games. So a a facility that huge has to have an enormous cost of uh, operation as well. Some of the other ones on here, number two is the Sunset Station Hotel and Casino. I've never heard of that. Hmm. Um, three is Mandalay Bay. Four is the Santa Fe Station Hotel and Casino. Bellagio is number five. MGM Grand is number six. Aria Resort and Casino is seven. Number eight is the Venetian Palazzo. That one I have heard of. Um, hmm. Green Valley Ranch Station Casino and South Point Hotel and Casino are nine and ten. So uh, hmm. all of these casinos are over about one hundred and forty thousand square feet. I think just for the casino part. I mean, most of those I haven't heard of, but no. I, I guess that just goes to show you I don't really know much about Las Vegas. I think some of those are newer, like like Mark suggested. Let's uh, mention the Venetian. I remember eating a disgusting amount of food and feel, feeling, even for like a 15-year-old, you know, like a high, high school kid. <laughs> you had crossed the line? I crossed the line. All the finest food piped in from Italy? Yep. When you're there, your family. <laughs> Um, let's talk about slot machines, because uh, Dave talked about blackjack a little bit and his friend playing um, roulette. Um, the Las Vegas casinos are famous for their slot machines. Um, slot machines can be found elsewhere. And Mark, you mentioned that you ended up like going way farther down the rabbit hole than you uh, you thought you were going to. I feel like that always happens to me. Slot machines are way more complicated than I thought, um, but I've got some some quick highlights. I really think we could do like an entire episode about like slot machines or games of chance. Oh, absolutely. So um, the uh, the first thing that you would think of as a slot machine was invented in 1891 um, in Brooklyn, New York by uh, Sitman and Pitt. But it was based on poker. So you had five reels with 10 pictures of a card and it spun. And if you got you know, depending on the poker hand that you got, that's you would win a prize. But there was no automatic payout. So if you got, you know, like two of a kind, the bartender, you'd tell the bartender they would come and like give you a free beer. And if you got, you know, like a royal flush, they'd give you like cigars or something like that. Uh, but it was they give was, you an atomic gulch. They give you if you, if you get a what's the best hand in poker? A royal flush. A royal flush. Okay. If you get a royal flesh, you get to go in the back and get the <laughs> the royal gulch, <laughs> the uh, the glitter gulch. Uh, we've kept that going for this entire episode. I'm really proud of us. Yeah. Um, glitter gulch. Uh, sometime in between, so people don't know, but is at some point between 1887 and 1895, 
um, Charles Fay of San Francisco devised a much simpler mechanism um, with three spinning reels that had five symbols, horseshoes, diamonds, spades, hearts, and a Liberty Bell. So the machine was called the Liberty Bell after that. If you got three bells in a row, that was the biggest payoff, which was uh, five, or I'm sorry, 10 nickels. So 50 cents was the big, the big jackpot. And this was yeah, an Don't autom- spend it all in one place. Right. Because it was a simpler mechanism, it could have an automatic payout. So this is what you think of as a slot machine. You put coins in, you pull the lever, the reel spin, and it might spit out coins. But by 1963, um, Bally, which is this big slot machine or casino game company, mm-hmm. developed the first fully electromechanical slot machine. It was called ah. Mon- Money Honey. So on these, um, you know, slot machines are sometimes called a one one arm bandit because they've got the lever on the side that you pull. After 1963, that lever doesn't do anything. It's not there for it doesn't need to be there because the machine is electronic. And then uh, after 1976, when um, the Las Vegas based Fortune Coin Company developed the first video slot machine, the lever on the side is useless except they still have them on a lot of the machines uh, because of something they're called a skeuomorphic, which is a term that I learned. It's basically where objects retain design features of their predecessor for aesthetic reasons. So, you know, you've probably seen the light bulbs that are LEDs, but they look like... They have look like they have a, a filament inside. They look like a filament or even the ones that look like candles. They're supposed to, you know, go in like a candelabra type uh, chandelier that term is called skeuomorphic so people expect the handle there most people that use the slot machines don't even use that they push a button because they just want to so some of these machines have it and you can use it but it's optional some of them it's fully decorative all it is is just you pull it and it'll still like basically make it the machine go right. but it's it's just for aesthetics yeah hmm. um, they're mostly video slots so these slots, they can actually, they run on, it's they're no longer mechanical at all. They run on a random number generator. Um, and even sometimes, so basically it's spinning on a random number. thing about random, random number generators is that can be hacked. Uh, and random number, number generators are not, they're not truly random. And producing true randomness is, you know, something that um, uh, data encryption um, experts sort of trying to produce. But anyway... Um, because of this, one of the things that they do is that machine is always spitting out numbers, even if no one's playing the machine, hmm. which, uh, makes them harder to, uh, harder to cheat at. The other thing that they can do is the house can set the payout rate. So the rate at which, you know, if this much money goes in, this is how much money will get paid out on average. Hmm. Um, so they actually set that people that play slot machines and games of chance, they have all sorts of superstitions and things like this. And this gets into something called the gambler's fallacy, which I just wanted to talk about really quick. So it's this idea that like, okay, if I watch the slot machine or it manifests in Las Vegas, where people watch a slot machine for a long period of time, nobody wins at it. The, the lurkers. Eventually yeah. they think that that slot machine has to hit as it's called, give a big payout. Um, that's not how they work. They're completely random. Um, the other way that people think about this is if you ask someone, I flip a coin nine times and I get a heads every time. What is the probability that I flip it on the 10th time that I get uh, heads or tails? And people will tell 50%, you. 50%, but they would think it's higher. Yeah. They think it's it must be a higher chance to get tails. So that's not how it works because each coin flip, each iteration of the random number generator is randomized. So it has equal probability, but that is intensely, intensely in conflict with the way our brains work because we look for patterns. Often we'll find them even if there isn't one. So randomness is very hard for the human brain to understand. Yeah. And then you also get into, you know, with gambling, there's, there's the addictive quality of it. People, people want to win. Well, it's also the idea that like, that everything is an eventuality and the longer it takes for something to happen, the more likely it is to actually occur. Right. There's a fallacy like this with baseball, right? When a hitter is in a slump, well, he's, he's due. 
like eventually it's going to happen. But I mean, there's also the the chance that you'd never break out of the slump. Right. That's not that's not how it works. And especially when it's something like a computer that's spinning on a random number. That's not right. How it works. But yes, that's why it's called the gambler's fallacy. Well, there you go. A lot to know about Las Vegas. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to head down to Vegas. Well, on that note, hopefully you've been enjoying these, uh, you know, a little bit lighter episodes. We had to cleanse a bit after the French Revolution episodes. Well, we got some fun stuff coming up, so we will see you all soon. Thank you for listening to an hour of our time. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to explore our catalog of over 100 episodes and rate and review on your platform of choice. And if you have any comments or episode topic suggestions, contact us at an hour of our time podcast at gmail.com. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit.